Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton, and with me today is Duncan. Hey there. And Jeff. Yellow. We are lean and mean and ready to talk about our discussion topic this uh, fortnight, I guess. That's with a N-I-G-H-T, not N-I-T-E. We are talking about adaptations. Good, bad, ugly, weird. Um, I did a little bit of prep for this. Not as much as Duncan, who is the eternal prepper. Mm-hmm. Um, he's practically wearing camo and in a bunker surrounded by cans of beans. Uh, how did you approach this topic, Duncan? Yeah, so the adaptation, the uh, the 2002 Spike Jones film about... Uh... <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Boo. That's his best one, though. <laughs> no, Had to do yeah, that. that's Jeff's style humor. Jeff's beaming. Uh, <laughs> I, I know my audience. What can I say? Um, well, you know one of your audience. <laughs> well, it's there's two of you, so that's a 50% audience share, and I'm very happy with that's that. That's true. That's true. Yeah, um, your numbers are charting very well. We're doing you for a second season. Which is uh, brings us to actually the topic of adaptations. Um, well, for me, the, the whole impetus of this is that there's nothing which seems to get the community surrounding anime quite as worked up as a adaptation whether it's oh it's this we're so hyped for this one or oh they betrayed the author or uh, or no i mean, i agree <laughs> <laughs> i'm just thinking of all the times like i was actually reading uh the uh Oguri Maniac's thing where he talks about the the uh, villainous and how, how much they had to crunch down to make it all fit. Um, but I think that the villainous kept a good pace. But yeah, people were mad at that. People are always mad when stuff gets cut in adaptations or when stuff isn't cut uh, in adaptations. Well, people are just mad all the time. The thing which l- led me to, to suggest it, it specifically was that uh, I really enjoyed ReZero last season and in like prepping for to talk about it i i looked on youtube just to see what people's impressions of it was and there's almost like a cottage industry of people talking about the missed parts of the light novels <laughs> see it's, same thing yeah and like yeah like people just going what what, what did this omission mean what did this addition mean how are they changing the flow of this and there's like i think we discussed before how the how the anime fandom likes to have like almost a control over uh what to expect from something it doesn't like to be surprised a lot of the time it no, likes it to it, it likes to, to to buy the product it is expecting and for it to deliver upon it that said promise and if it does not then there shall be hell to pay mm-hmm. so is there a particular thing you're thinking of in particular besides ReZero, or should we just go into well, what I've, makes it- I've specifically been been looking at at uh Ghibli's ones because specifically uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, Hal's Moving Castle, and uh, Tales of Earthsea because <laughs> they they are like three very differing adaptations. But I think before I sort of like go go more deep on them, I think like the the illuminating thing is why I chose Ghibli, which is normally. If people want to excuse a bad adaptation or want to accuse something of being a bad adaptation, there's a couple of sticks they'll beat it with. It, it, <laughs> it's a poorly funded adaptation. Look at the shoddy animation. How dare they not treat this material with the respect it deserves? Oh, it's a it's a complete 
elite freshman set of staff. Oh, these these newbies won't possibly know what they're doing. Or, oh, what a rush job. They clearly had deadline to meet. And, like, Ghibli? Ghibli don't give zero fucks about any of those things. And so I think it's like a a good control study when you're you're looking into good and bad adaptations to look at a company who are essentially free of all the common logistical yeah stuff yeah and yet they can still find ways used to not necessarily mess up but to create works which substantially diverge from their originals in very different ways depending on the particular authors behind them and the the, the studio system i don't know if, if you guys want to talk a bit more generally before I, I i sort of talk specifically about those those three films or if i should just dive right in no go go ahead and go in i can respond i actually on the uh i i have a couple of of well actually i have one major miyazaki and then one other ghibli film to talk about when talking about good adaptations yeah. um but it didn't occur to me i forgot that howl's moving castle is based on like a book right and yeah, Dying uh, jones uh so we've got we've got these three films kiki's owls and ursi and there's a couple of things they have in 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 common like not unusually for a uh a ghibli work there's they are quite bucolic there is a in each of them there is certainly many miles of rolling beautiful landscape they each have a a strong central theme to them now mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is that Strong central theme is not necessarily something which comes with all the works. So Kiki is very much a tale about um, youth and the loss of innocence, as well as uh, establishing a self-identity. But the novels which it's based on are a lot more anecdotal. It's it's a lot closer to um, the sort of travelogues we see in things like uh, Kino's Journey or uh, uh, Wandering Witch this season. It's mm. it's far more untied together by uh, overarching narrative, and what supposedly happened is during its product, it uh, it was originally going to be the first work of Suano uh, Katabuchi, uh, who was a, a key artist and uh, a general animator at um, Ghibli, but. Miyazaki being Miyazaki couldn't keep himself from <laughs> basically slowly but surely taking over the production and more and more making it into a Miyazaki t- type thing, bringing in the like some of the big changes he 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 made is like when I I think when I talked about about um, Kiki one of the one of the big. Um, like dramatic moments in it is Kiki loses the ability to talk with her her pet pet cat Gigi, and mm-hmm. that's that's like a, a big and loses her ability to fly as well. And those are both big, like dramatic moments in terms of her losing her sense of identity and having all this self doubt. And yet, none of that doesn't occur in the books at all. That's mm-hmm. that's Miyazaki drawing upon the overall themes and thinking, okay, I need like a central point to this drama and I need to give her a way of, of resolving this 
at the end with the, mm-hmm. the heroics. And that's that's that's, that's Miyazaki he coming in and doing what he does well, which is like having a strong sense of the emotional place of a work and tying something together. And I think Kiki of the three I'm going to talk about, Kiki to me is the strongest because it does only have it has that one central theme and it builds up your sense of character through its 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 flow and then has like this strong emotional issue which it raises and resolves to an extent. Um and like that was me that's Miyazaki he at his best as an as an influence on adaptations. And Howl I think is him at his worst. Howl <laughs> is a two hour and I think close to over two hour f- film and it has no right to be and that's entirely because um Miyazaki basically at the, at the time Miyazaki was really upset by the the Gulf War and mm-hmm. so what was animating him as a creator was these ideas of of because Miyazaki's a pacifist, like that's obviously something which has reflected in lots of his works, but it was particularly prominent and like strong to him then. And so, the war in Howl's is not really part of the books in any strong way. It that's a whole that's brought in by Miyazaki, and it's. I don't feel like it's needed. It's you've got well, this this strong story of Howl's sort of arrogance and his like obsession with his appearance and uh, Sophie's like dealing with like both the advantages and disadvantages of old age and her that actually sort of leading to her own self confidence building and their mm-hmm. their relationship. You don't need to throw on a, a war on top of that, let alone and this being Miyazaki, it's it's obviously an air war. And there's obviously lots of dog fights because freaking Miyazaki. Yeah. You were gonna say something, sorry. No, I no, I was I was gonna say that I just rewatched it, because uh, my uh my girlfriend hadn't seen she's interested in Miyazaki, but she's um somewhat younger than me and so like her main touchstone was like Ponyo. Um, so we watched Howl's Moving Castle because I, I'm i fond of parts of, of Howl's Moving Castle. I think as a whole, it it's, it adds up to shockingly less than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that is this focus on the war and the war takes up so much time and then it just ends at the end of the movie because like yeah. both sides <laughs> just like, yeah, stop. He, the, uh, the prince comes back after he's transformed from Turnip Head. And he's like, hey, stop the war. And she's like, okay, war's over. Bye. Um, and I think that it actually makes the anti-war message of the, of the movie, even if it exists like weaker, uh, Mm. than, than that. But like Miyazaki's integrated anti-war themes into his stuff before, like Porco Rosso was him, um, being really upset by the, uh, by the Yugoslav wars. Uh, and so that's, even though it's also based on like the aftermath of world war Mm -hmm. of world war one. Um, and so and that's, I think, Porco Rosso, as I've said many times in this podcast, is one of my favorite works of his. And it's funny that, like, give him, you know, give him 20 years and he will, or not even that, yeah, yeah about 20 years and he'll, he'll, he'll Spielberg himself up. He'll get mm. older and less <laughs> confrontational and more prone to, like, 
pat resolutions. And... It, it just feels like he 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 had. There's this story in Howl's which easily could have stood on its its own, similar to to Kiki's, and yet he he wanted to uh, basically slam in uh, Nausicaa into it. Like mm-hmm. it's like and like it didn't need it. And I feel like that's that's a case of this director who's become who doesn't have those limits who in with kiki's he's he's he obviously they had they were going to promote someone to be the director before he he came in and obviously Mm -hmm. like there's a certain amount of respect like miyazaki is very controlling so for him to even notionally sign off on something he must have respected that guy's work and so that sense of collaboration and Misaki maybe being a self-editor in Kiki's and not having a collaborator, I think kept him from too much doing his just taking it over. Mm. Whereas in uh, Howl's, I think he just adds on what he likes and he, he, he what and moreover what was occupying him as a as an auteur at that moment, and it just overwhelms the rest of it and i think like i'm not sure if you before we talk uh, see if if like either either you you think of other good examples of authors who have just basically been this is my thing this this works now about my thing and just i mean i i'm always hesitant to like identify anyone as an author in anime because it's it's such a collaborative i mean it's the same it, it it's my feelings about video games writ writ even larger. If we're gonna um, identify yeah, but, but, anyone, but, but though, that's then. Zen, uh, yes. Shinbo's adaptations of everything, I think, definitely has. Uh... We'll talk about those later, Jeff. Don't <laughs> worry. I've, got, I've got my own list. Uh, but but yeah, no, like if if anyone is an auteur in anime, it's it's Miyazaki. And in one of the things that I'll, I'll mention this now, and we'll, we can come back to it later when we go back to like my methodology. But like Nausicaa, where he wrote the manga and then decided to adapt it himself, and showed an incredible amount of like self awareness and restraint in cutting cutting mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. the story of Nausicaa to work as a movie that again is surprisingly absent in his later works, especially Howl's, which really does just feel like he's just making a stew and he can't get the taste right. So he's adding more stuff and more stuff and it still doesn't taste right. So more salt, more sugar still doesn't taste right. Chopping some onion. Yeah, it, it completely just in, like making this sort of stew of stuff as opposed to how lean he was in early, uh, early parts uh, uh, of his career like just taking the whole crew from Nausicaa and just making Castle in the Sky immediately after, um, based on apparently speaking of Welsh, apparently he visited a Welsh mining town during a strike and was really inspired by their sense of community mm. and work. And so that's why that's why Castle in the Sky just randomly takes place in a mining town for, for the first third of the movie. Um cool. but Well which is 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 weird because like um I know some parts of like there's some world hopping in the original, if I remember correctly, of Owls, which hop into Wales. But it seems to be like in like that sort of quasi-Germanic Prussian Europe, which which they they seem to like riffing on so much in in Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Like it's I I don't know exactly what it's it's like this composite of what cultured European in in. In looks like in the late sort of eight nineteenth century, I think is is what they've arrived upon. 
I don't think I'll be able to, I mean, I'll try to find for the show notes to find a, a statement, but I think that Miyazaki has said that his European settings always imagine a Europe that didn't experience the world wars. Yeah. He, um, so there's he, a lot more like old buildings and yeah. Yeah. He's, he definitely said that about out uh, Kiki's. I know that for certain. And that, mm-hmm. and that makes weirdly makes sense. It, it actually, this is this one shot in, um, if you, in Hal's where they've got a load of battleships um, sailing out in a uh, in a line from the docks, and that really it's it's a weird callback, but that really strongly evokes like some uh, old Pathé footage I've seen of of like the British Navy steaming out to war in in World War One, and like like I I think he's definitely he, touching on one world war one for that particular conflict that's mm-hmm. maybe that's like the end of his particular uh bucolic europe i think like him meddling and letting his own like personal fixations at the time cause problems with Hal's, but equally made kiki's i i would say which which will brings me to the third one we'll discuss which <laughs> is um tales from Earthsea. Which is also made by Miyazaki, but not Hiaro Miyazaki. It's Goro Miyazaki, his son. And which let's let's start with the fact it it was probably the only Ghibli film which I think has got a really negative um, reaction from critics and fans alike. Um, both of the book and of, of of animation, which is tough to achieve. Like it's like I can feel think of far few adaptations which had such high expectations and such prestige associated with them, which flopped so bad. And typically, and I'm not saying it's it's totally unfounded. Typically, that blame is laid um, squarely at the door of uh, Goro, like at this young director who's directing his first major film at his dad's company. And there's always this undercurrent of it must be the nepotism, which is why this is turned out bad. And I think that undersells how much this, I think, was maybe doomed whatever. The Earthsea books are very much about the growth of someone, about this boy who boy sparrowhawk who grows up to be the wizard's ged and and literally that changing of of this idea of finding your true true name which has become such a trope in 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 magic in modern stuff but in the original earthsea stuff was relatively fresh and was used as a metaphor for the change between childhood innocence and adult self and they're very much free works about someone growing up and coming to terms with their own power and their own what their responsibilities are. And because you, there's no way you can fit that growing up into one film, I feel like it was doomed from the start. Because you couldn't do that, instead of having these internal conflicts in this incredibly powerful character, they get externalised and turned into just generic fights and battles like the the, instead of the the threat of the wizard he ends up facing whose name is Cobb 
mm. being about being a reflection of what Ged could have become himself if he hadn't, and still could become if, in order to defeat him, he just becomes this generic evil wizard who's going against the way things should be. And it just takes Le Guin's subtlety and all the baggage which the character has occurred over two novels and just throws it over its shoulder and struggled to see how even a, a great adaptation could have included all that baggage in even just a two-hour running list. So I feel sure Goro probably didn't help it. And I think maybe it's right to say here um, the elder Miyazaki should have done more to guide Goro because um, if you if you look at Kiki, that's an example of okay, you've got this first-time director and he's struggling, in steps the, the head of the studio, guides it, helps him, and in the end takes over, <laughs> admittedly. Mm-hmm. But the fact that either out of love or respect for his son, he didn't do that here. Not ni- Neither love nor respect, unfortunately. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Like, if he had stepped in and they'd been able to to work i think you could have got something out of this but i still think it would have been doomed that's one of those things that that i I think some things should not be done ben as appropriately enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the the net of weird trends that created earth see how it was uh is kind of hard to unpick because Miyazaki um, had been hoping to groom successors and Yoshifumi Kondo, uh, who directed Whisper of the Heart, um, was one of the top directors and thought to be the, the eventual successor of Takahata and Miyazaki. But he died of an aortic dissection uh, or aneurysm in 1998. And that start that prompted Miyazaki's first retirement um, before he came back for Spirited Away. Um and Spirited Away is what finally got him uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's attention because she thought animation was just Disney movies and did not want a Disney movie of mm. the Earthsea books. Yeah. Um, but as in an attempt by the studio head, Toshio Suzuki, to try to train up another uh, director to be the new successor, it was they picked Gora, who had hitherto been a, a landscape designer um, because he thought that he could never reach his father's potential. And Miyazaki was very angry and upset about this, and they did not talk the entire... because he thought Goro was too, inexpensive, too inexperienced, and they did not talk the entire time uh, that he was you making, know, that he was this making is, the This movie. is the point you scream at, at, at the elder Miyazaki. You're not helping here. <laughs> like, it might not have not been perfect, but step in and, sh- and show that the same sort of collaboration you did, it's like 20 years past it Kiki's like you you think he's a novice director and you're an experienced one well freaking help yeah I I mean I think that there is a as, as fatherly as Miyazaki looks and as as warm as his movies often are I think that he's he's a pretty pretty vain and self-involved person like if you watch the uh, kingdoms of dreams and madness the documentary um about uh yeah <laughs> about, about 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 takahata and uh and miyazaki he just like he's not interested in other people's opinions and it wouldn't surprise me if uh when uh suzuki uh uh made the decision he's like well fine we'll see we'll we'll see tales of earth sea fail even though he was the one who for years had been trying to get the chance to direct mm. Earthsea. so it's it's a complicated thing there but i i can't agree more that Earthsea is just a 
unsalvageable mess, boring, slow, mean, um, completely muddled thematically, mm. completely losing the charm of the books. Um, it's it's by far the nadir of of Ghibli stuff, and that includes you know the lighter things like My Neighbor the Yamadas and and so on. Like the, I think like the thing which makes me one makes me far like me a bit sad is like I. The next film Margot directed up on Poppy Hill, I think, is great. I think he he generally yeah, yeah, it's more than <laughs> fine, Ben. It's a it's a generally touching little snapshot in time, and supposedly he worked quite heavily with um, his dad on that, like as like trying to address like this idea of two generations ideas of of this war and like you you think the themes in in Earthsea of like this change of generations of, of Ged it's passing on his own sort of position of of leadership he, he's sort of wandered into just by his preeminence of power to someone else like damn it you could have could have done something here if if you could have got past it was Miyazaki letting his personal feelings get in the damn way again basically is what <laughs> it comes back to if it's not war it's it's his feelings over his son damn it i i think m- maybe he, he there aren't many directors where personal feelings muck up adaptations as much as Miyazaki but that's probably because very few directors have quite the power that he does yeah, I mean that's it's unparalleled. The reasons that allow him to not have the logistical concerns that so often sink adaptations are the exact reason that he's allowed to just go sometimes make a terrible movie or not terrible, but make a mediocre movie or sink someone else's movie by refusing to like <laughs> take yeah. up his role There's by no way as mentor. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Jeff, what mm. makes a good adaptation? What makes a bad adaptation? What makes a weird adaptation? <laughs> um, so, for me, uh, an adaptation like an adaptation basically has to justify itself because, in a lot of cases, I think you know, mo- usually like the the original is the way to go, and an adaptation is basically trying to use that as a starting point and then spinning it off into its own thing and it should be taken into account like the different you know if it's a you know if it's a static medium then moving it you know into a moving medium should make sense if it is you know just text then bring in visuals needs to you know add a lot to it as much as the text does itself um i mean it's no secret that my favorite adaptation is the monogatari series there's like you know it's a it's a unique confluence of just like the kind of weird shit that makes my brain go you know pop along with a i don't i've only ever read nisio in, in translation so i cannot speak for his you know his prowess in his native language but the adaptations that i've or the translations that i've read i've enjoyed you know as well as you know outside of the monogatari series is uh uh, Katana Katari has a very interesting, deliberate uh, tone to it, which, you know, I've said before, like, did not, I think, translate very well to an adaptation, which mm. I've, I haven't even really been able to make it through. Whereas with Monogatari, the, because it is so, you know, it's just, it's basically just people talking and the, <laughs> the visuals 
add so much to it and there's so much ingenuity and there's so much just like you know crazy you know flair that is not even hinted at in the books and their willingness to take jokes that only really work because they're in text you know revealing something has been a certain way for an entire scene and then just you know having it be there staring you in the face in the adaptation is like you know it's it's the sign of a good localization and <laughs> i i really really appreciate those kinds of works um and as for like like a bad adaptation i think i mean like, these are kind of like a a, a joke or a meme at this point maybe this like sort of goes into weird but the the netflix adaptations of random anime properties that was popular a couple of years ago and then just kind of went away after having Can you like give an example uh, the death note one. A... like oh the death note adaptation is it's the only yeah. one that i've seen and it's the only death note thing that i've seen and that's too bad even i can tell that somebody somewhere on that production staff really liked death note and really wanted to like, okay, I'm going to make this so that like normal people can enjoy this, but it's still so weird. And you can tell the things that came. Cause like, I don't know, like it's, it's unfair to generalize, but there are certain like, you know, plot devices or narrative structures that you can say, that seems kind of anime. Like when people use anime as an adjective, like, Rightly so, people will push back against that because it's usually used unfairly. But at the same time, it was you know you will also be like, yeah, I can, I can kind of see where there's coming from. And having you know L having his backstory of you know he's from a secret uh, order of super detectives that the government has been working on in in secret, and they go and find their you know their lair and it's got the like crazy tim burton like patterns all over the place just because like <laughs> that's the kind of thing you would probably see you know that that probably came right from the manga but mm-hmm. dropped into a live action adaptation where everybody is a westerner it's just like there are certain like motifs and assumptions that are baked into something that came from japan just because they have you know obviously mm-hmm. different like cultural assumptions but like just dropping some of those kinds of things into the into a an american movie just clangs really really obviously and weirdly but at the right. same time it, it, they it's have... obviously like an outsider trying to recreate american culture in a way that's where they don't realize all of their <laughs> blind side but that's the weird thing because it's not an outsider <laughs> it's an insider trying to adapt an outsider because like as far as i know like death note does not take place in america in the manga like that's all in japan like they're they're not it's not like the weird fake north america that you sometimes get in manga it's just like oh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take this thing from tokyo we're just gonna drop it into washington because washington is cheap to film in and we're going to just do all this like a very similar story but we're gonna have it starring americans and you know taking place in america and it's just it's such a, a bizarre like gumbo of different like cultural assumptions and styles and but also some performances that are because like Willem Dafoe is in here and he's just full green goblin you know he's there for a paycheck he doesn't give a fuck and he's having a good time 
and so like, like there, there's enjoyment to get out of this and they and they and they have like you know because death note is at its best when it's just like you know the the silly cat and mouse like well i thought of this well i thought of this well i thought of this yeah. and like they do yeah. recreate Literally cops and robbers shit from yeah being like a kid on the playground and and they and they do capture some of that at times but it's just it's such a weird exercise and i can definitely understand why these kinds of things i don't think are really happening anymore above mm-hmm. and beyond netflix just being like well we've done this for two years so fuck it yeah <laughs> it's is. interesting you, you're t- talking about uh, uh sort of genre conventions and and just to pull back to uh, uh ishin and uh katana gatri for a second one of the things i i loved about that is that in uh, is that the main protagonist is kind of the original one punch man like they they when they introduce him it's like every every ninja who's sent to to fight him has this outrageous this garb and and comes up to him and says this is my special move and he's like um i don't have a special move um is it okay if i just punch you and like, mm-hmm. like the sort of sub arc of of the whole whole his whole sort of journey across is him trying to come up with a special move because he he doesn't have one and just it's each time saying i've got a better better name for it this time it's not that that he's he thinks he's got he's improved the move just it's it's like he's sort of a more showy and better name for it mm-hmm. and like that that sort of self-awareness of that that he's in uh, a fighting show is is quite endearing to me and so I think yeah. like Tanagati does still have that, even if it is a incredibly strange, one one off of a show. In that it was like forty five minutes per episode, mm-hmm. which is just and and in, and, and it was of. also like relatively early in his writing career. And I don't think he's ever really been good at writing action. He's still like there's no, still a I lot of dialogue and like back and forth going so like you know somebody jumps into the air to do a move and they have like a five or six you know split shot uh you know cuts of people talking to each other on his way down to kick somebody and the adaptation is a little bit too faithful and just kind of like does that and i just i I kind of found that irritating (laughs) okay yes i found it indeed i i found it endearing you found it irritating and there's a very fine line between that i think in a lot of things and yeah, and on the uh, on the struggles of uh, doing adaptations without uh, a cultural uh, translation into it, uh, this is so. I read recently a manga called Fuka, which I've told Duncan to read because he's a fellow mm-hmm. traveler in trashy shonen romance bullshit. And I'm I'm about to to spoil the fuck out of it. I don't know if you give a shit if you're ever gonna wear it yeah. and watch it or read it. <laughs> have you have you have you met Duncan? This is, this is Duncan. He doesn't so, like spoilers. So so Fuga is like you know it, it it's 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 a pretty basic setup. You know, boy meets girl, blah blah blah. The, you know their their hook is that it's revolving around these two kids wanting to start a band and you know they do all the and you know there's it's full of improbable uh you know circumstances and coincidences like you know their homeroom teacher happens to be the keyboardist of the you know one of the greatest bands of all time who you know who broke up five years ago and like nobody knows it and you know the guitarist that they pick up happens to be the sister of the guitarist in that band 
and his childhood friend is the biggest pop idol in Japan at the time and all these other, you know, dumb things. And, you know, the main sort of introvert boy is like dragged into its, you know, anime style. It's like, you know, by this like manic pixie dream girl who you know, drags him into everything. And he's just like, but then like 20% of the way through the manga, the main girl is hit by a truck and dies and <laughs> I was like, like, like it happened in the in the in the manga. And I was like, "What is what's happening here?" And then the next chapter is they're at the funeral, and this is for real. She doesn't have amnesia. There isn't going to be some kind of arc. She's just dead now. And the rest of the manga is this like introvert kid deciding that he wants to continue like doing this thing that was her band because like, oh, this is making me happy and. Now I, you know, I want to do this. Now that's, that's what the rest of the manga is about, and like you know, his own struggles of like getting over this death, and hmm. but that happens about where a season would end of anime, and they so it'll just be like school days if they adapt it. And so what they did was they just didn't kill her. <laughs> they like just like oh she just like she just left the band to start her own solo career in a move that was like wildly wildly like out of character for her and they just like this childhood friend who was always going to be doomed from the start like she becomes the main girl for a while and then there's just like you know a will they won't they sort of love triangle happening there and like i was like what what like and apparently you know Fuka when like that the big thing happened was not well received at all because I think you know Pete like Duncan was saying earlier people like to fans don't like change yeah they don't like change <laughs> and they don't like being surprised by things and like I like I was reading and I thought it was great and it's like it's like I genuinely did not see that coming and it was it felt really fresh especially since it's the a sequel to like probably the most generic thing that I've read the entirety of and and enjoyed like it's you know it's basic good workmanship you know like a workman like manga but this sort of like you know it it showed you know either the 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 author was like bored of being up to their own tricks or was just kind of like you know confident enough to like do something weird like this mm -hmm. and yeah like ad like adapting that with but like changing the thing that made it interesting was just like a baffling choice to me because like presumably the whole point of making one season of, of anime ad adapted from the manga is to get people to go read the rest of the manga. Right. But it's like completely and different. Come and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah like, and yeah. you know, they'll, it's like, okay, the, you know, this takes place right after this part happens and wait, what, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, uh, what is the point? <laughs> she, she went, she went away to the farm. Yeah, yeah I, a couple. I have a couple of things in my weird. I have three different uh, note doc, notepad documents open with them: um, the good, the bad, and the weird. Um, and one of the categories is for the weird. It's just why does this exist? Yeah. Um, like, uh, and I think like Medica Box was the one I came up with first, where it's like, oh, we're gonna take a subversion of Shonen Battlers and then just play it out as a straight Shonen Battler, but with all of the subversive dialogue in there. Or Samurai Seven, which is like, <laughs> hey. What if we just make seven samurai, but robots? They're all like robots, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I don't think you got what seven samurai is if you have a bunch of of heroic robots turned the rescue, um, <laughs> or record of Lodos War, which I think we we talked to death in a in a far distant episode of just like 
D&D session reports, cool. Turning the D&D session reports into a novel, cool. Turning that novel into an OVA, uh, it gets, and I don't know, it, it, the further away you get from the original fiction thing, mm-hmm. the weirder it gets. Um, and that's, uh, and that's really what I was strike, what was striking me. Um, but to like, to have my piece, um, I do think that there are like several categories of good, bad, and weird that I was going to go through and we can agree or disagree. Um, I think that, that one of my favorite types of adaptation is that one that condenses a large, uh, a large manga or novel down into, um, of, of a, an authentic and, um, homage paying adaptation that is itself its own work. And so like Akira and Nausicaa are both adapted from huge mangas down into less than two hour films. Fist of the North think... Star are kind of the same thing. <laughs> okay. There's that classic Jeff trolling. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, like that's the biggest risk that I think happens with, uh, with manga adaptation is just adapting the, mo- as much of the manga as you can fit in your episode runtime, I talked about mm. boys over flowers to so that Duncan will probably agree about index needs to be more aggressively and less faithfully adapted. Um, yeah. Monster. Although I'm sure we're going to get hate mail over me, not liking monster monster is too slow and boring as an anime. It's better as a manga where ceaseless interiority is not a constant distraction from things happening. Um, this is something that I think the Monogatari series actually struggles with a lot better. Uh, either either lampshading the interiority mm-hmm. or externalizing it as opposed to just having someone who just talks to themselves constantly which granted we all do we have a voice inside our head unless you have that specific neurological disorder mm-hmm. uh, where you don't have an in- internal monologue um but yeah and like vinland saga which just like just can't get the pacing down um and really just struggles yeah. to make things make things happen happen yeah. in a way that seems like it has momentum and direction yeah, I think Vinland Sagas can very quickly talk talk about because like that was a while back. It was I I think I have on record of saying is like the thing I wanted to see adapted more than anything else. And, yeah, I think twice and, we you said it twice, and then you got then it was monkey paw, and then then, <laughs> then then it was, and I had to deal with what 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 we had, which was an extremely uneven show like with some real high points as, as far as i was concerned but some real sort of naruto run low points um yeah vinland saga especially seemed to suffer from it just could it it was getting beat up both ways where the parts that cut people thought were like trans like transformative in a bad way and like gutted the story and then when they wouldn't cut stuff very basic interactions would take forever and i think um guy can't remember his name uh the Askeladd, uh, Thorfinn. yeah Askeladd. yes Askeladd. very i mean you knew i was gonna talk about it. but yeah his arc um just is completely ruined in the adaptation even as someone who hasn't read the manga like i can tell what the bones of this were and and it just seems like he just gets hit with a stupid stick for a few episodes and then just like wakes up from it and yeah that, that's that's sort of the opposite of what you described in monster in that in the mangas it f- that feels like this long sort of slow loss of control of his his troops and then whereas in the the adaptation it just feels like as you say he gets hit with the this, this stupid stick and suddenly they're doing things which are completely daft Right. Suddenly he's unable to like control the flow of rumor and the, the mood of his of his mercenary troop and and it just spins out of control. So, yeah, 
I was excited about Endless Saga and still kind of sad that it didn't pan out. But the other side of that is like shows where they're good, I think, because they take pacing, often four coma pacing, um, like Kaon or Lucky Star are working and actually manages to weed it, weave it into like sort of like light vignettes over a continuous story. And I mean, I've read the Kaon four coma and it's funny. It's as funny as any comic that you can open your newspaper to if you get a newspaper still somehow mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's as funny as any comic that you can go to gocomics.com and pull up uh pull up the latest uh issue of um but but like actually being able to like sustain the characters between these these four panel vignettes um and have them exist outside of the gags and actually have just like them be people means that the gags are funnier and i think that that's one of the one of the when four coma adaptations are good and aren't just skit shows that have that were have been just like hurriedly stapled together into 22 minutes of anime uh, i think that's always really good um yeah you do and the you, other good i was gonna go say ahead. just on the four comas you do get exceptions to that which are f- both faithful and good in their own way things like um i'd say like hidamari sketch i i enjoy even though it is very very much much, much puns and uh, setups um and equally uh nichigo i think yes is very much still in its original form but yeah it almost comes across like yeah nichigo doesn't doesn't really have like characters as as people within our lives it has like characters who are just like collections of traits yeah. and reactions um that's fair which, that's definitely fair <laughs> yes which lets which lets some of the, like the meaner slapstick elements of nichi joe be funny that if we cared about them like we care about uh say inami or or uh no i, I don't mind seeing takahashi get it hit takanashi get hit because he's <laughs> creepy as fuck but um but yeah, and then the other, and then, so there are two more categories, one that I think we can talk about and one that like, it's just, it's just like, it's just good because it's, it's really good, but like the audiovisual presentation, like Chihayafuru is a manga, mm. but I think the process of hearing, seeing the movements mm. yeah, uh, and right. hearing the poems makes like, I, again, I haven't read the manga, but I assume it's better than the manga because I like it, <laughs> uh, but no, like Chihayafuru, Flowers of Evil with its like weird uh weird uh uncanny valleyness mm-hmm. genkutsuo with its bizarre art style um mushishi with just like silent all all manga unless you're uh you are having it read to you is silent and so the fact that mushishi can be adapted so that silence and calm become more active objects in the enjoyment of the fiction i think is an important part of of why i like mushishi as an as an anime is that like quietness in manga is just blank space and white space is an extremely important psychological tool for people consuming fiction but it has a different weight to it. At least i think has a different weight to it than than audio silence an interesting i there's a in, in theory around comics and manga, there's this idea that the pacing of uh, Japanese manga is different to Western comics substantially because they they favor 
moment to moment transitions far more than scene to scene comparative mm. to western ones and i think it's interesting that Mushishi, you talk about Mushishi having these moments where very little is happening and is very quiet and that i think that may actually be an interesting example of what, uh, something inherent to one medium being transmuted into something different in another medium but still capturing the spirit so that the pacing that you read a page instead becomes the soundscape of a moving show mm-hmm. no that's 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 almost exactly and that kind of segues into like there are there are certain adaptations i think are just alchemy like eccentric family ghost in the shell standalone complex march comes in like a lion the tale of princess kaguya where where they're all elements of what I said were good parts of good adaptation, but like I can't pick out one reason. Like the si- silence in March Comes in Like a Lion is an extremely important detail, like the quietness and isolation um, of de- of depression and loneliness. Um, but that's not why it's good. It's just one part of why it's good. Uh, and the tale of Princess Kaguya, the art style is extri- incredibly striking. But there's also it's just it's it's a complete package and i would i would feel i'd probably make an ass of myself trying to to say which part of it is 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 the nugget of the good part so <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it, it's interesting like the silence thing just before we completely move off it um yeah. one of the first things i read about kiki's del- delivery service is that it was one of the first um ghibli things to to get a western um uh distribution and uh adaptation and dub and one of the things which was changed and which is often changed with um anime dubs is that silence was removed and music was added because is that is this idea that you could use silence to set things up what was not readily accepted by western executives at the time and i still think is pushed back at, at now um like one of the things that to to go to what Jeff was talking about Netflix anime adaptations of stuff like is that the, I think even compared to um, shonen an, anime they're they're far more soundtracked and far uh, far far more busy as a soundscape and I, I think like as a part of the anime style which is maybe not recognized is is that is that a willingness to have quiet before the storm yeah um specifically like the like we won't be talking about this for a bit but uh i've been watching kyogemono at jeff's at jeff's exhortation (laughs) and so like the idea of like one of another element of japanese aesthetics which i always i always bring this in here is like the idea of of uh coup like emptiness or absence um and like wabi and sabi which are like imperfection and uh and just like accustomed use Mm. and so there is like the idea that like a lot of adaptations especially western adaptations try to fix that like yes there should be music there telling you what you're supposed to feel otherwise someone might get confused and lost or bail on it and i think that there there's a comfort about sitting with it that oftentimes uh does not transfer over um this actually kind of reminds me to transition to like the weird ones um there are i wanted to bring up shigurui along with death note and full metal alchemist (laughs) it's just like 
adaptations that are good but have been sabotaged by as you said when you were talking about like what usually sabotages an adaptation (laughs) are production difficulties where shigeru just stops at the climax fuck you you don't get to find out how it ends unless you read the manga and full metal alchemist having it's like alternate it's like completely different ending because they had outpaced the manga and the death note uh it's second it's second season um getting getting cut from a 26 episodes to 13 uh so things happen a lot faster and and sometimes people talk about how like oh yeah death Note was really good but then it got really bad and it doesn't seem like they have a very strong awareness of like what technical or production considerations can sabotage an otherwise good adaptation although if you want to debate whether or not death note is good that's this, for another podcast that, 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 that reminds me of something else i was thinking about which is that, that sometimes i think adaptations not a show not uh, uh, a work not getting fully adapted and only getting one season when it has multiple volumes can actually be something which works out well like i know i i can't remember i think it's you who's with me on uh full metal alchemist being better than brotherhood um uh i think they're both equally interesting in different ways is that does that count <laughs> yeah that's, that's it but i i know like a lot of people like there's a lot of hype around you can see online like go go on any guide and they'll be like you don't have to watch full metal alchemist anymore brotherhood is brotherhood has completely superseded it and that yeah. is a wild opinion to have yeah that, that is <laughs> there's a very different there's a, just the antagonists of of the the two arcs just being completely different people mm-hmm. and their like associations being utterly different make that that a nonsense to me and i guess it depends how much shonen fighting you want some people want a lot um but and and brotherhood has great fights while while um while the 2003 for my alchemist is a, a lot more a lot more emotional, a lot more discursive. There's a lot of like talking, oftentimes kind of pointless, like talking in circles, anime talking. Yeah. But um, but still a different tone. Definitely. The the other two I were going to bring up was um, Land of the Lustrous, um, because it's first. I've I've read the manga up to its its current point, and dear God, it goes completely off the rails after a certain <laughs> point, and like. It's what was adapted and what we have seen is is re- is while it is still relatively confined in its scope and its um, what it's dealing with, and so you get these ideas like what is how mo- this idea of sense of self, which is its main preoccupation of who is Foss and how, as she loses parts of herself to gain other things. And, mm-hmm. and this slow amalgamation of someone's experiences and sort of nature and nurture and built like all these little things you get them really well encapsulated in this uh one arc whereas in the manga it's lift, it it just has blossomed out of that into something incredibly complex and in some ways, a bit more trite, sadly, mm-hmm. um, but also very strange and good in other ways. Um, but I, th- I think I'm glad that we won't get a second season, even though I do enjoy the, the re- having read the rest of the work because it was like the, the concentrated essence of it. 
And I, I'd, and the other one I was going to talk about is Flowers of Evil, which yes, I was going to ask if I could guess, but you obviously are enemy of the decade and a <laughs> perennial thing we will return to because me and Jeff both finished it and we have a, a long recorded and never uh, put out by me a uh, discussion of, of the manga and uh, what happens after the um the, the series ends but equally that that I think the the whole atmosphere of sort of confusion and disillusionment which permeates the original series i think that f- little flash forward we get at the end of that that first series i know that that partly is just like uh hopefully we'll get the money to make the rest of this but mm-hmm. that yeah, just like... that was explicitly why they did that they wanted to goose somebody into giving them some more money to do more but the moments they took were selected so well it creates this like sense of intoxication and and loss of of control which i think just capped that series perfectly mm-hmm. and so it's this this weird case of of i think so i i, I once again with that show I, so much of it i wonder is that what made it good was was deliberate and what was just happy circumstance um but it i think it it's it ended perhaps stronger because the the things it it it's oh, that it as a singular work addresses and that aren't addressed by other works are strongest in that first work it certainly has things to say in its latter half but i'd say there are other good works out there which address them similarly uh, and in different ways but that first half is is dealing with things which just don't get dealt with in anime yeah right and when you have to when you have to distill something down to to 13 episodes you have to figure out what about it what about the material that you're adapting the the section of the material you're adapting is is emblematic and has a worthy thing to say and it means that you often end up cutting away uh like other plot threads other groundwork that you've laid down mm. um and that you come up with something better. I was just thinking, uh, I just finished, uh, this is not anime, so mm-hmm. sound the alarm. <laughs> but I just finished watching Kipo and the Wonder Beasts, and I was Age of Wonder Beasts on Netflix. And um, I liked it, although it has a kind of like corporate mandate air to it that it never fully shakes, even as it's like blacker and gayer in terms of at least its external features than a lot of stuff out there. But like, apparently Netflix came to them and said, give us 30 episodes of stuff, exactly 30. And we're going to air it as a mini series. And they're like, okay. And then apparently they aired it as, they just aired it as three seasons of 10, but they'd made it as one single piece there. And I think that a lot of what makes Kipo good and that had so confident about where it goes is that they were just told to make 30 episodes and not to like, let's see how many seasons we can get out of this, which um, prestige TV has helped with a little <laughs> bit in, in the West, but not that much because we still have game of Thrones and the walking dead and, mm-hmm. Westworld and yeah yeah and, uh... and, and Netflix I think has created an expectation in the people making it that you are probably not going to get more than two seasons and if you yes, do unfortunately then... because of the way things work yeah, yeah. this the this magic of the show... algorithm says so this is actually this is this is well with just off anime like there's like a rare um a live action 
example of that, which of this idea that it's of an incomplete story yet being maybe better than filling it out is a lot of people I've heard talking about the Watchmen series say that making a second se- season will spoil it basically because it exists in a point in the fiction where the fiction is just setting is mood and you don't need that mood in the background brought into complete and utter definition you just need it's there underlying what's going on in in the show and mm-hmm. I, I think like that's that's maybe a bit how i feel about full metal alchemist that Alch- I don't need like the full history of alchemy given to me. I just need it as this tragic force which has caused um, all this woe and uh, s- sadness because of the same sort of conflicts which happen in uh, Earthsea. In fact, Full Metal Alchemist is 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 weirdly similar in I- its themes and ideas to Earthsea. So that's that's. Mm-hmm. Go watch Full Metal Alchemist instead of Earthsea. <laughs> yeah, surprise champion of, of this conversation. Should, well, although what Ursula Le Guin would have thought of that that show, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah. And my last thing I really want to throw out is stuff where where they're weird just because they're really hard to compare their source material. Jeff already talked about uh, the Shaft adaptation style, which almost, uh, especially in Sinners that's supposed to say in the Monogatari series, um, often is almost turned into sort of like an annotated an annotated audiovisual product mm-hmm. with these sides and the title cards and in science that's supposed to say that he loves the chalkboard just randomly having like references or like excerpts from other stuff um and then of course we have time order shenanigans in humanity has declined and melancholy for Suzumiya, where the where the base stuff is presented in chronological order but the adapters have decided mm-hmm. to like mix up the chronology in the case of Haruhi, I think pretty successfully to tell a different story than the one we're seeing. Um, and in humanity has declined to kind of make the upshot of the apocalypse through which humanity has declined uh, a little less immediately obvious. And then my last one is Oh, Ido rocket because it's very weird to have a stage, <laughs> a, a series of comedy stage plays adapted into uh, a, a serial shown in comedy series by the director of the first full metal alchemist and the guy who, uh, the director in Shirobako is based on. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed Oida rocket, but it is definitely a strange show. It, it's extremely strange. Well, cause it's got a bunch of Gintama jokes with like, they've got a TV and like they do the recaps with everyone in the, in the town, like watching it on the TV that's in the town square. Mm. Uh, and I don't know. I like Oida Rocket. I rewatched the first half recently because I was just uh, had a headache that wouldn't go away and just kind of needed noise that I couldn't process. <laughs> but ended up watching a bunch of it anyway and making my headache last longer. Do do um, remakes count as adaptations? An anime of is an anime is is a remake of <laughs> anime squared? Is it? I was gonna I was gonna ask, but we're, we've we've run over an hour so i didn't want to bring up if is is rebuild of evangelion an adaptation of evangelion yeah. um is... i'm gonna say yes because <laughs> clearly something's going on there bye bye all of evangelion and but, uh, you know and also bye-bye. i mean uh anno's you know sort of vacation movie that he's made in the middle of that shin godzilla is yes. you know the hard reboot of godzilla but is also obviously the most you know 
the most loving recreation of Godzilla that could yes. ever possibly be made. And now he's doing Ultraman, which makes me realize that we didn't bring up uh, SSSS Gridman <laughs> as a, a fairly transformative adaptation of mm, Ultraman, yeah. mm-hmm. so the Ultra series. Anime adapts a lot of stuff because anime is not particularly profitable and largely a marketing tool. Yeah. So, except for the huge series that run forever, and obviously that's why they're huge and run forever because they're actually making money as opposed to throwing the flowers of evil guy just like a few million yen to to make this and then being like, no, sorry, no more. Mm-hmm. What? What? Why do we think that Trigger got away with doing such a different adaptation of? Ultraman, because is it just because it's uh, a a it's a property which is so so uh, well known, so widespread that it's fresh to be deconstructed, or and I, I think it's probably partly that, and partly that it's been so locked up in legal shit that there's nobody yeah. with a a with a lot of feelings about how it should be that still have any power. It's it's a good way to bring in a new era by just having a completely different adaptation of the thing. This is completely me talking out of my ass, yeah, but I do too. think that there there is like <laughs> it is there is like a by providing a break, they're kind of like this is a new era of Ultraman. We're not going to keep getting stuck. That's why we're having a, a new Ultraman uh uh movie by Anno. Like yeah. and it's the it's a tactic that Godzilla's used where they have they have reboots that aren't quite the same way that American and British TV does reboots, but it is just like, this is the new continuity. It's much more like comics, actually. We're like, this is the new Godzilla continuity. You're welcome to watch the old movies, but they're not going to be referred to, except maybe as like inside jokes. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to kind of like break put a break in the chronology so that you don't feel obligated to watch all like 38 Godzilla movies to understand what's going on in Godzilla King of All Monsters the or re- whatever. But at the same time, it's going to keep going back to the well of bringing in new stuff until it gets so muddled that they decide they need another reboot. Like James yeah. Bond is probably going to have. <laughs> I think next Bond might years. just die. I, I keep getting the sense that like everyone, like it's tired. It's not performing as well. Everyone who was working on it seems tired of working on it. It's, I don't know what's going to happen with Bond. They, they very, like Bond is entirely dependent on lucky into a charismatic lead. And like, well, like Daniel Craig wants to kill himself working on Bond. He was going to quit before his uh, the twenty fifth one, yeah. and then they managed so to talk him into it's, it. It's whoever they get after him, they've just got to be lucky to get someone who's who's got the chops to pull it off. But yeah. it, it, it occurs like your comics and an analogy you makes me smile because I now like think of as like the rebuilds as Anno's crisis on infinite earths like, <laughs> just smushing everything together and like okay we'll, we'll just send all my ideas about this to fight and whichever ones are, survive at the end win well the, the funny thing is when they first started coming out there were a certain segment of people who especially like old animation is ugly contingent who i have just have less and less communication with these days mm-hmm. probably by choice um <laughs> That were just like, oh boy, now you don't have to watch the old TV show. You can just watch the movies. And I'm like, and both me and Anna were like, no, you need to watch all of them. Because in fact, they take <laughs> place in a, in a repeatedly iterated world in a time loop. Something, something, blood on the moon. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, well, was, that was very much a, a good encapsulation of me like five years ago with pieces of red string and posts. <laughs> 
Well, going out on Eva sounds like a good idea. Let's go ahead and take a break, and then we'll be back to talk about Library Wars, or Toshikan Senso. And Jeff has uh, some shows about little girls he wants to talk about. <laughs> okay, it's mostly shows about dads, but let's not get too wild here. <laughs> As we said, I'm going to be talking about library wars. This is something that, um, well, let's say hypothetically, this is something that a uh, college student in the final months of his time at college torrented uh, because it was the hot thing from production IG. And then for the next 12 years, he didn't watch it. Um, But uh, anyway... Unrelatedly, uh, I finally got around to watching Library Wars, Toshokan Senso, uh, which is based on, I think, light novels. I should have looked this up. I never do this anymore. Um, but anyway, it, it, speaking of adaptations, yes, it's based in the light novel series by uh, Hiro Arikawa. It uh, was a production IG work um, with not any particularly distinguished uh, staff, um, but a pretty good voice cast. It came out in uh april 2008 um so as you can see just just around the time that someone not myself might have been graduating college uh and just trying to get more into anime because that was definitely the year where i was like if i just watch like an anime show every month i'll quickly end up having watched more anime than than anyone i know and i can be a malcolm gladwell style like ten thousand hours expert on that (laughs) um could see the kind of mental space that I was in uh, exiting college. Uh, so Library Wars follows uh, Kasahara Iku, uh, who is this young woman who, when she was a kid, uh, the uh, the library, I forget what the exact term is for the for the, the team, but it's like the the. Well, I'll just explain the the, 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 theory, the, the thesis of the world uh, instead. So um, in the history of the world of library war, the Japanese government published a, a series of laws called the Media Betterment Act um, that allowed uh, that created a basically a near independent government bureau that could decide which works should be censored and destroyed to try to improve um, public morals and uh, societal peace um and they've rapidly rapidly uh exceeded their their remit um and so there's a rival series of law series of laws called the freedom of libraries law that were that were evoked to make a these like militarized library defense forces that serve to counter the media betterment committee in its attempt to just basically burn all books especially criticism of itself um, or of any sort of uh, authoritarian government, um, they 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 talk. There's a there's a holy book they talk about that ends up being Fahrenheit 451. Uh, that is uh, that is a joke that I hope that people in Japan could get as much as me. Anyway, so this young girl 
was getting the last the last volume of her favorite childhood fantasy series and for some reason the library better the media betterment committee tried to burn it um and the like library defense force uh came and saved her so she decides to become a library defense force person even though she is kind of dumb my favorite type of of female shonen protagonist she's just kind of she's like strong she's very strong she's an ex track and field person um but she like she loves literature and she thinks that everything shouldn't be censored. Um, and it becomes this, it's only, uh, only, uh, 12 episodes plus an OVA plus a movie that I'll discuss in a moment. Cause I watched that too. But, um, but it involves, it's basically a three part show it has a, uh, it's a political thriller about like conflicting government bureaus in the style of, uh, Full Metal Alchemist or Akka or uh, or Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. There's a lot of like jurisdictional arguments and like which laws are being evoked and which laws supersede other laws. Um, it's John's shit. That's why I wished he could have been on here to, to hear me talk about it. Mm-hmm. Although I've already like bent his ear plenty. Um, and so it's just, it's that. It's also military hardware porn. Everyone's got very up to date guns. There's a whole thing of like they use submachine guns unless they are allowed to like pull out the full rifles. They're snipers. Um, there's lots of helicopters cause they often like when someone dies, they'll often try to donate their books to a library and the, uh, media betterment committee will try to confiscate and burn those books. And there's like weird laws where they can only fight for like 24 hours about this. They're only allowed to fight for that long. So there's a lot of just like military hardware porn and like people shooting at each other and like flanking and radio commands and other sort of like tactical considerations. And then third, it is a romantic comedy between uh, Iku and her, her instructor, uh, instructor Dojo, um, who uh, he is smart, but easily frustrated. She is tall and clumsy, but she's, she's Genki and she's got that passion. And also he's like, six to eight inches shorter than her and the show thinks this is extremely funny for a for a short guy and a tall woman to be in love not not lovely complex level duncan <laughs> um but but just like he's he's slightly shorter than her um i don't know it's really nice to see to see the kind of money that production ig was dumping into fairly undistinguished anime in the in the late 2000s um this is still like at the tail end of the anime bubble popping like most stuff wasn't getting licensed if you were watching anime you were either watching it pirated or you were paying huge amounts of money for like genion pioneer style 180 dollar box sets uh I still have my Trigon box set. That was the first anime I ever bought, and I got it for my birthday, and it cost $185. It was the only thing I could get for my birthday. Mm-hmm. So um, I cherish that thing and will keep it forever, even though it got a Blu-ray release, which is not a very good. It's just a cheap upscale, so I didn't bother to upgrade. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, so it, it's, it's just fun to like kind of go back to a time capsule where things felt less focus-grouped, to, to evoke that that phrase again of just like, it's a romantic comedy that's also a military like shooter that's also a political thriller and it doesn't do any of them particularly good but it's all <laughs> kind of nice her roommate um is especially funny because she's just like the person who knows all the gossip everywhere uh she's got a um she's got this whole thing where she's got this 
it's, it's, it's Miyuki Sawashiro is actually what I should tell Duncan first and foremost. <laughs> um, and she she's like has a Hime cut and she like always is like they live together in, a, in the dorm and she's always like in front of the mirror, like doing her hair different or like doing like a face treatment. But since she's got this network, she's always able to give advice for her for her dumber but more impetuous roommate to go ahead and do stuff. So it's got good characters, good romance, good action. It's only 12 episodes. I don't even know if it's available streaming anywhere. Um, I mean, of course, I streamed it, but uh, I don't know where it would be available streaming for uh, for the rest of y'all. But um, yeah, and then the movie kind of moves more aggressively into this one author uh, who is being targeted by the Media Betterment Committee uh, because he published a book that terrorists copied the plot in there for... Uh, for a, a terrorist attack, and so they feel that all of his work should be should be uh, censored. Um, it's them trying to like. There's a lot of appealing, <laughs> like it's like the whole thing is like they're protecting him while he's under a judicial appeal because uh, the media betterment committee will try to kidnap him or take him away, and kind of trying to figure out like going through the appeals process. If those fail, maybe they can he can get asylum in a different country that doesn't have these ridiculously aggressive censorship laws that basically allow an un, a non-oversight government bureau to to just destroy books on demand. I don't know. When I was talk when I was watching it I mentioned it to Jeff and he, and it and we were talking about how it is like kind of weirdly timely mm-hmm. uh, but also in a very anime way of like we don't have a government where the Justice Department and the Marshal Service can duke it out with ICE and Department of Homeland Security. And they wouldn't because they all see themselves as big, as one big ideological block. Um, but it is interesting insofar as like showing how departments can abuse vagueness and laws or contradictory laws um, to really extend their power. And sure, it's in the it's in the format of a of a goopy, goofy and goopy uh, military rom-com but I don't know. It was just a pleasant surprise. It was a very different thing. I don't think it would be made these days because the world makes no sense that they would have these two contradictory laws that result in in paramilitary forces openly like fighting in the streets. <laughs> uh, in streets, if they have jurisdiction, they're allowed to shoot at each other. If they don't, then they then they just punch each other. And so there's lots of like the classic japanese anime where just a bunch of guys come in and just they're just brawling and it's just (laughs) yeah so i don't know i can't really recommend it but it was definitely like a a really probably the biggest change of pace i could have possibly given myself after boys boys over flowers Mm -hmm. uh so yeah uh, that sounds like a very strange like both you make it sound both subdued and very strange which is a a very contradictory thing for me to say yeah but, it's like anytime but, like you know military hardware and tactics are invoked it's like even like like standalone complex is a very buttoned down version of the original ghost in the shell and it sounds like <laughs> yeah, this is also too. kind of kind of weird has that like that sense yeah. of like weirdness to it still well well because because like they don't want to kill each other because if anybody dies that becomes a scandal mm-hmm. so they have these like they have like the low impact like airplane bullets that like Used on, for use on, with like marshals on airplanes where they fragment after like fragment on impact and don't like cause any like penetrative damage um so it's basically people shooting each other with rubber bullets and like it's like a big scandal that that uh that the commander of the library of the uh library team defense force like lost his leg during what's called i think like the hifuno incident or something which was like the first major military action 
to try to like censor and destroy books. So it, 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 it so it's very interesting that like they're they're shooting each other, but the but the media betterment committee is just trying to shoot at them enough that they that they retreat so that they can burn the books, and the lightweight uh-huh. defense team is just trying to shoot them long enough that the that the that the helicopters can get away with their like shipping That's... containers full of books such an incredibly <laughs> stupid de- detail like so it's basically airsoft it's it's like one step yeah. from airsoft well people can get hurt and people can get in the hospital and if you get shot a bunch then you're then you're then you're in danger of dying I mean, that's true um, of airsho- airsoft <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah but it, it's it is just it is the sort of thing that i'm not as used to seeing these days where it's just like the premise is very dumb but it's in place to ask interesting questions and to like and the char- like the character interactions are just nice. It kind of reminds me of uh we're not gonna talk about this until next episode, but like uh Warlords, Sinyoku of Sigurdrifa, which is like it's kind of a dumb premise. Odin Odin appears to like give humans magic to stop invading aliens. It's but like it's it, it's just the groundwork for like nice, funny character interaction. <laughs> And it's just like a bunch of extremely experienced voice actors in the case of Library War just kind of giving a solid performance and doing light comedy in between having to like suit up in, in riot gear and like shoot the the media betterment committee who dress up like Jinro guys and like M. Bison from Street Fighter to let you know that they're evil. <laughs> so... Is this just basically the equivalent of a 7 out of 10 game? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I would actually bump it up to, I think I gave it an 8 out of 10, because it's just, it's fun, it's pure, it's production IG, so it's it's beautiful, even though what you're largely seeing are people in uniforms, and occasionally gun battles that aren't terribly dynamically shot, but still nice. I don't know. I enjoyed it. If you want some military hardware, but like, you want the stakes to be whether or not this book is going to be burned, um, or maybe that is too close yeah. to home in 2020. So you should, you should watch Equilibrium is what you're saying. uh it's like it's like equilibrium if there was a rom-com attached to it and also some more bureaucratic wrangling as opposed to these guys just being like fucking judge dread but with weird gun ballet like if if you're gonna put people should actually watch shimonetta which is is i think this is better i think this is better than shimonetta i'll put that out there (laughs) it doesn't take much to be it's it's not a great show it's it's Uh, on the same thing of just like i wonder if there is there must have been historical japanese censorship censorship laws that do have see this anxiety of like what the government just because of some sort of terrorist event just passes like a ridiculous censorship law that like basically makes free expression because it's interesting that like oh. they point out that free expression is protected in the Japanese constitution. And that's the reason for the library defense team. But somehow that doesn't, that does not make the law that allows for like roving censorship gangs. <laughs> it does not make, does not make that unconstitutional mm. or whatever. Was there not a big moral panic in like the late nineties where like some, like it was like a stalker, a killer was shown to have a big anime collection. And then the otaku murderer, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about him in a couple of recent episodes mm-hmm. there was there, but, and I think there is like Japan does tend to like put things under social control first and ask questions later, uh, which I guess is what, what makes it not so silly. I mean, except for the guns yeah. and like the, the rival government bureaus shooting each other. Uh, but it does it does say like yeah it is possible that you know someone could be like oh well there's been a series of incidents re- incidents recently we need to have like 
an independent watchdog organization with the power to censor media at will to prevent this from happening again. Yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Now we just have Facebook. It does that for us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look out for the, the, the the Facebook defense team parachuting into your house to, to, to burn your computer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, only if you're cute. The Oculus Rift. (laughs) Yeah. Was it the Oculus (laughs) 2? That, yeah. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. Jeff, yeah. tell us about Usagi Drop and Sweetness and Lightning. Yeah, I got kind of into a weird dadcore kind of headspace for <laughs> a couple of weeks there and power watched those two shows. And they're they're very similar in some ways. In you know, they're both about single dads trying to raise a kid and, you know, the struggles and triumphs of that. But it's interesting because like one like so Usagi Drop, you know, speaking of animes that benefit from not adapting the entire work um <laughs> so, so like the, keep going yeah soggy drop is about uh this like 30 something single dude who going to a family uh funeral for his grandfather they discover that he apparently has an illegitimate child who is uh, like a five-year-old girl and you know it's a big scandal and nobody wants to acknowledge her and you know, they're talking about putting her in a, an orphanage and he's like, I'm going to take her. And he's just sort of like very spur of the moment decides that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to raise this child. And, you know, basically right away starts running into like, what is the reality of that? And it's a cool show because it largely, I, it, it's largely about the sacrifices that somebody has to make and comparing that to sweetness and lightning. So, which is, a, which is about a, like a, a recent widower who you know is trying to do the single dad thing uh but he has like you know and the the show largely revolves around uh this dad and his daughter and his student like making random food like and they're all just kind of like learning to cook together and it's about sort of like you know building you know family and community around this a very simple act and 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 it's it's much more like a like a sort of like a light comedy but the soggy drop reads to me as written by somebody who 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 has like decided not to have kids whereas sweetness and lightning (laughs) reads to me like some uh, as somebody who has kids because like both of them deal with very real anxieties that parents go through but like through very different lenses so like the in a soggy drop like it's it's it, it comes out that you know the girl's deadbeat mom is a mangaka who and like no i don't think any like type of person is like more harshly treated in any work than mangaka's hmm. like thinking about themselves <laughs> or them yeah you know, who they're yes. like themselves and like you know and I, you know, I told myself that I would not psychoanalyze somebody who, you know, based on a translation of an adaptation of half of a thing that they made. But yeah, <laughs> the like, like the, the dynamic in uh, in Usagi Drop used to me as somebody who's decided like I can I, I can have kids, but and if I did, you know, if I was in this situation, I would probably choose my career over the child. And if that were the case, like this is the kind of person that I would want to be the father of that child. And mm-hmm. also this is the kind of father that I would want to have, which is 
I think might explain the weird direction that the manga takes because like, you know, in in the manga, this is not in the show whatsoever, that there's a big time skip and the little girl is, you know, grown up and she starts to have romantic feelings for this person who is like ostensibly her father for basically her entire life. And effectively her father yes yeah. yeah and you know and they you know they do all the things it's like well they're not technically blood related and all that kind of bullshit but it's it's gross okay. and it's weird and it's creepy and it's it's <laughs> just it's just it's just not a thing that a parent would write whereas in sweetness and lightning the dynamic and and and, and in that it's it's largely about the struggles of the parent failing the child and you know the kinds of sacrifice that he has to make to make it work and whereas the child is just this this is this like you know an angelic being who can only be failed whereas mm. in sweetness and lightning it's it, you know there is a very real sense of like like the the frustration of a parent trying to deal with a child who just does not have the tools to deal with the things that they're dealing with and the kinds of like emotional bubbling over that, you know, is inevitable unless you are like some kind of like a perfect, perfect being. And, and I was surprised that, you know, a show that is as light and as silly as sweetness and lightning sort of like getting that dynamic a lot better than Usagi drop does. Whereas, you know, because yeah, there are moments where like the, the daughter uh, is like, you know, in uh, in Sweetness and Lightning, she's just like, you know, he takes her to a restaurant because he's like, oh, it's too late. I can't make food. Like, we're going to go to Okonomiyaki. But, like, the way it's prepared is not the way that the kid had envisioned it. And she just, like, shuts down and because she's hungry and she's tired and he's hungry and he's tired. And there's, you know, and that, you know, and he blows up at her because she's, like, you know, being an asshole and making a mess. And, like, they have to, like, you know, they have to go out because you know, even more so than here, like having you know a public outburst like that is like hyper embarrassing and there's nothing like that in usagi drop like in that it's all mm. about like you know he makes all the right decisions like he, you know his, his struggle is like how do i get to the right decision fast enough whereas in sweetness and lightning it's much more about like the day-to-day -day struggle of like you know this is a thing that happened we have to be able to forgive each other whereas like there's just there's none of that in usagi drop and mm -hmm. Even though, like, I would still say, like, you know, it is a pretty good show. It's, you know, it's nice and it's kind of schlocky and, you know, it's a feel-good show. But, like, it was just an, an interesting take on, like, it, it really seems like, you know, somebody who, you know, understands, you know, the implications of being, you know, what, what being a parent would mean for a single person. Whereas, as opposed to the implications of parenthood for a, an active parent. And it was just, like an interesting comparison in my mind of mm. like sort of like being in all those situations that the shows, you know, both of those shows depict and having gone through them myself. It's, it's like, okay, yeah, they, they, they both like have, you know, they both make interesting points and I enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's cool. I, I didn't, I hadn't thought of that dichotomy in my diffuse awareness of, of Usagi drop and sweetness and lightning, but it is interesting to like, I mean, as you said, yeah, it, it, when, when I think of having a kid, I'm like, oh shit, how would that change my life? And that seems to largely be kind of like a, a gentle power fantasy about how you would like do all the right things mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. And I think that that's an unrealistic thing, expectation to have about parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> but this is fiction. That's the power of fiction. You can imagine yourself as just like the best dad. Mm hmm. 
or the worst dad if you're watching Evangelion. <laughs> so. But yeah, yeah, that was, you know, other than watching all the stuff for the new season, which we're going to talk about next time. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to, to talk about that. Uh, I've, yeah, we can talk about Golden Kamui's adaptation weirdness then too, with a, with a nod backwards. Uh, all right. Well, um, like we said, next episode is going to be us talking about our first impressions of the fall 2020 anime season. And uh, in the meantime, just, uh, I don't know, rate, review, subscribe to us on whatever podcast service you use. Email us questions, keyframespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at keyframespod. Find us on Facebook, search for keyframespodcast. I was posting boys over flowers gifts. I might, may post some... Senyoku no Sigurdrufa gifts there. And uh, of course, tell a friend. Tell Andy since, he, since he's not here right now. Yeah, yeah. You feel free to tell any friend. Andy's not here to gatekeep who you're allowed yes, to tell. Right, right. Every, anime is for everybody. Uh, just some anime is less for some people than for others. <laughs> all right. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye, Olivan Vangelion. <laughs>